Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In this Rajiv Vaidya Memorial Lecture, recorded on December 2, 2012, cultural historian Thomas Alsasser, one of our most creative and unconventional thinkers on cinematic culture, film history, and digital media, speaks on the interconnections between the cinematic avant-garde of the 1920s and modernist architecture, the nonfiction film, and advertising. Alsasser, an expert on expressionist film and author of more than 20 books on the history of German cinema from the 1920s on, gave an illustrated lecture that included advertisements and industrial films from the interwar period influenced by avant-garde cinematic techniques, followed by a screening of a new digital restoration of Walter Wattmann's classic 1929 film, Melodie der Welt. Some years ago, in the course of researching films about urbanism, social policy, and mass housing in the 1930s, I had the opportunity to watch in a relatively short space of time a large number of documentaries and animation films from the years of the Weimar Republic, as well as from the subsequent Nazi period, alongside some of the classics of international documentary film. The films were all made during roughly the same years, 1920 to 1936, when both the political left and the right in Europe, and to a lesser extent in the United States, were wooing the working classes by offering better living conditions, more beautiful cities, better homes, and modern housing. If one adds uh, the many industrial films, the educational and promotional shorts, the advertising, public health, and agitational films, as well as the cross-section a day in the life of a city films, then a fairly diverse and intriguing picture emerges about public and private cares uh, during the interwar years, as well as a sense of the cinema's growing role, not just as a storytelling medium of fictions and fantasies, but also as an instrument of public policy. Yet my sampling made it clear that the term documentary, famously defined by John Grierson as the creative treatment of actuality, falls seriously short of describing either the range of genres and messages or the formal and film technological in innovations on display in this corpus. However, the label propaganda, which so readily comes to mind when thinking of German production from the late 20s and 30s, equally misrepresents the variety of topics, even if the prevalence of films about hygiene, washing powder, soap suds, cleaning, scrubbing, fighting tooth decay, or warning of syphilis, in retrospect strikes one as having an ominous tone of cleansing and purging. I want to show you my first uh, extract or short film, Der Zahnteufel. Can we have the film, please? It says, keep, keep teeth and mouth healthy with Rebecca Pebeco. Now, against this, well, this is from 1915, actually. Against this, to us now, suspect obsession must be held the incontrovertible impression that almost all of these films testify to an evident pleasure that the proficient animators and professional directors must have felt when making these films. Here was a young medium in the hands of the young whose ambition and energy made them at times reckless, risk-taking, as well as opportunist. An exuberant faith in the medium 
we may well have extended to a less defensible faith, or indeed indifference, to the message. In short, it seemed that few of the German films I saw were simply propaganda for a political party or a racial ideology, although you might, you might say that uh, the depiction of the devil there is racially somewhat insensitive. But almost all of them were propaganda for the medium of film itself, an exciting tool and toy for all kinds of explorations of light, movement, color, shapes, objects, and their interaction. One could not call their style subversive in the sense of offering a kind of aesthetic resistance to the diverse messages they were obliged or eager to transport, but their wit and playfulness, their cool elegance and matter-of-factness also freed them from the hectoring fanaticism of Nazi newsreels or the stridency of both feature films and propaganda shorts during the war years. Let me show you uh, an example from 1938, Spiel im Schaum. Can we have the second um, uh, film, please? Assuming, therefore, that the conventional categories, progressive versus reactionary, propaganda versus public information, formally conservative versus formally avant-garde, uh, art versus commerce, do not apply, how then should we classify this body of work? How to avoid throwing out the baby with the bathwater when comparing, without preconceived labels, the popular front films in France, the farm administration films in the United States, the empire marketing board films in the United Kingdom, and the output in Germany of the interwar years. A first approach is to take some of the well-known films from the vibrant and effervescent avant-garde that formed immediately after World War I, the so-called abstract film or pure cinema movement, which seemed to have no re representational object or intent, and instead of aligning them mainly with the different art historical movements of expressionism, Dada, surrealism, or constructivism, which is how they often feature in history books and the artist's own biographies, instead of this, to track the film's formal features as they reemerge in advertising and industrial films. And I want to show you um, a, a film uh, called Opus. Um, my apologies for having to switch between number of different uh, media, as it were. Uh, I should add that the music uh, has been uh, added uh, at a later point. Uh, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave the music out of it. So here you see an example of uh, abstract film. It's from Walter Ruttmann's Opus uh, 1 from 1921. And uh, I now want to show you uh, a film that Ruttmann made in 1922 called Der Sieger. Could we have Der Sieger, please? Right, as you see, the, um, the abstract patterns of Opus 1 from 1921 were incorporated into this advertising film for tires. 
But we also need to remind ourselves of the many international and transnational links that existed among the various European avant-garde filmmakers in the 1920s and early 30s, and the efforts many of them made in order to improve their visibility and market position, especially towards the end of the 20s, when distribution and exhibition of independently made films became increasingly difficult, mainly because of the conversion to synchronized sound. The best known of these efforts uh, were the ones um, uh, that brought together uh, some 20 filmmakers, writers, and critics at the Swiss castle of La Saras in 1929 to form the International the Congrès International du Cinéma Interpendant Moderne. Uh, here you see them, uh, the CISIM, as, as they call themselves, Congrès International du Cinéma Interpendant Moderne, CISIM. The same Swiss castle that the previous year, sorry, here's uh, um, Sergei Eisenstein and Leon Musniak uh, who were present at, at the 29 meeting. The same castle, the same Swiss castle that hosted um, the previous year uh, the first meeting of the leading architects uh, to found SIAM, the Congrès International uh, d'Architecture Moderne that you may, you may know from the history books here uh, in 1928. Uh, uh, Le Corbusier and uh, Siegfried Gideon were very much uh, prominent uh, in 28. But this uh, alliance for the independent film did not survive much into the 1930s, partly because the participants could not agree what strategy to pursue in the face of the crisis, aesthetic but even more so financial and institutional, which the sudden introduction of sound had brought to the pure and abstract film movement. In the conventional history books, uh, the breakup of the group is attributed mainly to this resistance uh, um, to sound on aesthetic grounds, as well as divergent political views with the Italian and Spanish filmmakers lining up on the right, as it were, of the political spectrum and the French, German, and Russians siding with the political left. Yet when one studies uh, the timelines, the letter correspondences, the travel itineraries, and the geographical distribution of these some of these members of the Alliance for the Independent Film, it becomes clear that most filmmakers participated in all kinds of informal networks and benefited from the intermediaries of modernity, be it the new communication technologies of telephone or new means of transport, planes and ocean liners, but also depended on more traditional bonding, such as friendships forged across the ideological divides in the trenches of World War I, as well as borrowing each other's equipment or indeed sharing lovers, all of which resulted in the mutual sponsoring of lecture tours and a European-wide network of film clubs and film societies promoted uh, by little magazines and rich uh, patrons and uh, generating income from commercial assignments and municipal contracts. In other words, the, um, uh, the divide, the su supposed divide between those who were for the pure film, the independent film as pure, and the independent film as what we now call freelancing uh, was by no means as sharp as uh, uh, in retrospect was claimed. Now, these multi-level networks suggest two further thoughts that can provide new ways of understanding the logics behind the seemingly unclassifiable corpus of films that do not easily respond, as I said, to categories of abstract and applied um, documentary propaganda or indeed feature film and uh, avant-garde. Just to give you some ideas here uh, from uh, uh, Georg Wilhelm Papst, The Secret of a Soul, 1926, you see some of the same animation techniques uh, 
and avant-garde procedures are used. Or here, uh, this is from Faust, uh, the Murnau film, also very sophisticated uh, in terms of its animation techniques. Here, a shot from Fritz Lang's Spione. Uh, um, here, Viking Egeling, using similar motifs. So here, Lotte Reininger uh, doing her uh, Scherenschnittfilme, um, cutout films, that were also used uh, by Ufa in its large productions, for instance, um, uh, um, the Nibelungen films by Fritz Lang. So from what I've said so far, it makes good sense to regard the cinema of the mid-20s until the late 30s quite generally, and especially with regard to the diverse genres of the non-fiction film that I'm concentrating on this afternoon, as spearheading and promoting different aspects of modernity. Now, without entering into the terminological details, let us assume that in the case of Germany in particular, at least four kinds of modernity are involved in the transitional period between Weimar and Nazi Germany and its cinema. One, the mo modernism of the international and transnationally minded artistic avant-garde that I just mentioned. Two, modernization as it affected labor and work routines with Ford's production line techniques replacing the workshop and craft practices, which was an industrialization process that in the film industry was accelerated with the introduction of sound. In other words, a new division of labor uh, was implemented. The third modernity would, would be modernity as a particular attitude to life, and one that in Western societies is associated with the rise of a middle class, with increased leisure time, and new patterns of consumption including the emergence of lifestyles promoted through precisely advertising. And fourthly, modernity as a political ideal shared across the party spectrum and directed at public policy, including safety at the workplace, health and personal hygiene, community housing, and public transport. Once these different aspects of modernity are taken together, then the seeming diversity of styles and subjects in these films resolve into a more, more common set of preoccupations, of which the cinema, as the modern medium par excellence, was both the vehicle and the embodiment. You see, here we have some of those uh, um, um, ad advertisements I was just mentioned. But there is another way of identifying the logic of these films and to understand the dynamics that brought them into being. This also requires us to think differently not in terms of avant-garde movements, nor by way of individual artists producing a self-consistent and coherent body of work, but by way of the concrete creative constraints, which were the conditions of possibility for these films to exist in the first place. Filmmaking, as we know, is an expensive medium, and the cinema is a public medium, which means that films need an institution that provides the funding, a place to be performed, and an audience to see them in order for them to, set, to, to, to be set to exist. These conditions of possibility, uh, this is my thesis, react back on the filmmakers and determine the films in both form and content to a much greater extent because they collectively constitute the creative constraints which can be a spur to invention and ingenuity as well as a hindrance and an occasion for self-censorship. In the research that I did on, on this very heterogeneous corpus then, I defined these creative constraints as the three A's that need to be specified and investigated before one can interpret a film or come to a value judgment. 
What I proposed, besides identifying the director, the subject matter, and the date of the film, was to ask three questions, labeling them as, as I said, the three A's, three A's in German, or the three C's in English. First, who was the Auftraggeber? That is, who commissioned and paid for the work? Second, what was the Anlass, i.e., what was the specific context and occasion? And third, who was the adressat, i.e., who was the constituency, the actual audience, or the envisaged target group? Taken together, these three questions form a kind of network of interrelated entry points that reflect the heterogeneous or even potentially antagonistic forces that can be shown to have shaped these films in their historical context. These forces give them meaning and use, which in turn tells us something about the society as well as the artist. And devising the questions, I was partly guided by Bertolt Brecht, who, in Walter Benjamin's essay, the, uh, the author as producer, der Autor als Produzent, is quoted as saying that avant-garde artists should not withdraw from the world of technology and commerce, but should engage with them as a producer, rather than as a, an autonomous uh, artist alone. However, Brecht added, we must not supply the apparatus of production without trying to change it from within. What this meant for Brecht was that an artist not only had to be technologically at the cutting edge of his respective craft, but also had to be able to intervene in all the relevant media and use every available means to be present on all available channels if he or she was to have the leverage to effect change. One of the consequences of this strategy is that in contrast to the division of labor that typifies capitalist modes of production, artists learned to work in a network, either by technically repurposing their artistic product or intellectual property, if you like, the way that Rutman used his abstract films um, as elements, building blocks for his uh, um, commercials, um, or by working with others who could complement their work and amplify its reach. The real challenge, Brecht once said, is to think in the heads of others, not in one's own. The three A's, in turn, allow the historian to reconstruct the media networks operating at any given point in time and to uncover a film's line of force uh, that may not be limited to its aesthetic originality, but may make it an eloquent witness to its time and place and thus to history nonetheless. But my network theory of com commission, occasion, and context may also uncover unexpected links to the present and give some of the cinematic finds from the archive a new kind of life. In the first instance, our research into specific media networks in Weimar, Germany, and beyond have led to urban planners, the postal services, radio broadcasters, city councils, or industrial conglomerates and manufacturing companies as major innovators also in the field of cinema because all of them were eager to utilize the cinema for advertising purposes, were prepared to use the cutting edge craftsmen of, of the day and also, uh, as, as indicated, used the, the film medium to educate and to train and in some instances to, doc to document and to archive. 
This is why my three A's can also function as classifying markers for film archivists today who are now increasingly working with material that has no canonical status within traditional film histories, but which nonetheless makes up a significant portion of a national film archive's holdings and is often labeled, especially by contemporary filmmakers, as found footage a suggestive name that releases these bits and pieces, or as they now known, the, the orphans of the cinema. Here, orphans redux, uh, anthology film archives recently, or here, uh, the orphans uh, uh, conference um, number eight uh, this past year at uh, New York University. So it releases these orphans of the cinema from their anonymity, but it also exposes them to being explored or exploited uh, solely for their poetic qualities, which often depends precisely on us not knowing the three A's about them. So there's a certain tension between found footage, which relishes the anonymity because it allows you to uh, do a kind of surrealist collage, and the more historical work on the three A's to actually contextualize them and to give them a name and a place um, within these broader cultural histories. Some first results of the research I conducted with a group of graduate students and colleagues can be found in two books published in the series I edit for Amsterdam University Press uh, that Peggy mentioned earlier. Moving forward, looking back, details and documents of the European-wide networks that I mentioned earlier, you see the European avant-garde and the invention of film culture 1919 to 1939. And films that work, industrial film, the productivity of media, um, is, is an attempt to uh, bring together case studies of non-fiction films, documentaries, and other so-called Gebrauchsmedien, utilitarian media, including industrial films, advertising films, and those public health films. Now, not only from Germany, but France, Norway, and the Czech Republic. The main insight we gained from our research was the fact that not only these utilitarian films, but also almost all the films that have come down to us as belonging to the so-called pure or abstract avant-garde, uh, respond to the three A's as well, and usually were dependent on either private patrons or commissions from official bodies, public institutions, political parties, or pressure groups. What was especially remarkable was the fact that local governments and political organizations, and indeed on the left, on the right, as well as the Social Democratic Center, were as prominent among the sponsors of films as were large corporations in Germany, IG Farben, Mannesmann Steel, Henkel, uh, Sunlight, Nestle, along with emerging consumer branding, we saw it with Persil Soap earlier on, in the Czech Republic it was Barta Shoes, or here we have Nivea skin cream. What advertising and music videos are for aspiring co uh, contemporary filmmakers uh, using the internet, uh, it turns out commissioned films were the, for the talents of the 1920s, a platform and a playground for experiment. We should not forget that Leni Riefenstahl and her team, when they made Triumph of the Will as a propaganda film for the then recently victorious Nazi party, came from the same avant-garde. But that, perhaps, is another story. Here I want to show you two promotional films that clearly enjoy their formal virtuosity. One that celebrates steelmaking, a further favorite subject of rapidly rearming Germany, but this one, as the soap ad, was made in Italy. The second film is a film promoting a trade show, and I'll come to that in a minute. Let me show you first the, uh, 
an extract from the, the film on steel. These bicycles are a motif that you will find in, in Bad Rechts Kuhle Wampe all the way to uh, the Seekers bicycle thieves after the war. A favorite uh, theme when uh, industrial subjects or the city um, was involved. You see here how, how the, the moving vehicles in this uh, steel plant uh, encourage the camera to, uh, to follow the same movement. A kind of animation of uh, the film material through the, the technology that it's representing. And if you know Metropolis, you realize that uh, very similar images uh, uh, open that film. You see how a kind of anthropomorphism, you see the two eyes there now, uh, uh, so uh, it plays with uh, our way of you know, responding to movement, but also uh, to anthropomorphize uh, uh, large machinery, uh, a 19th century subject par excellence. Um, I would like now, now to show you, sorry, I'm coming back to that. I actually want to show you a film uh, that promotes a trade show and therefore gives me an, an, um, a way of talking about the second day, the, the context or the occasion. So can we have, please, uh, film Kifo from 1925. This was a film made for the annual Kino and Fotoausstellung exhibition in Berlin. So as I said, it, it was uh, uh, an advertisement for the film and uh, photo exhibition. And so it features uh, film equipment, uh, uh, toys, a bit of the history of uh, the cinematograph. Uh, you, can you see how the mechanical and the um, anthropomorphic are uh, uh, blended and superimposed and enter into a kind of dialogue with each other. Manual skills and machine skills, animation and uh, uh, live footage. Guido Seba, a very well-known cameraman. There you see a caricature of uh, Emil Jannings. recognized cabinet of Dr. Caligari and it actually says you know the famous uh, phrase is to must Caligari werden and as you say they, they wipe it and say you must come to the Kifo exhibition all right thank you so this was certainly perhaps the most flamboyant film uh, made for a specific event. Uh, but as it turns out, many trade fairs and professional exhibitions, especially in the area of radio and architecture, also commissioned films. For instance, until recently, it was little no a little known fact that, uh, if I can have my uh, screen back, a little known fact that uh, one of the Dadaist uh, Hans Richter's most famous works, Die Neue Wohnung, a film about the new architecture of international modernism, 
satirizing the decor uh, of heavy furniture and the knickknack it wanted to replace, was actually commissioned by the Swiss Werkbund for its annual show, the Vauba in Basel in 1930. One of the reasons we did not know about this is that Richter re-edited the film subsequently and removed any sign that suggested sponsorship, and that the earlier version only came to light thanks to a diligent uh, Swiss scholar uh, who wrote an entire book about the film and its history. You see it here on the left. Uh, similarly, only recently discovered were the films that the Dessau Bauhaus made to promote its activities and products. Today, the combined efforts of art historians, exhibition curators, and film scholars are beginning to bear fruit in that there is now a concerted determination to identify, locate, and secure these films, often hiding anonymously in archives or collections, including the archives of those firms that commissioned the films, which in most cases are not the most appropriate place for fragile, perishable, celluloid-based materials. While the commissioned films by artists such as Hans Richter or Man Ray, long ago restored and conserved in galleries, film archives, or cinematheques, have not diminished in art historical interest by being identified as work made for hire uh, or made for specific occasions, the awareness that utilitarian films may have a special value as evidence in a broader history of modernity has had a kind of knock-on effect. For instance, now that these ephemeral films are being studied by historians and shown at festivals or to accompany exhibitions, uh, hitherto unknown or ignored directors are being discovered for the first time. And some have even become posthumous auteurs and bona fide named artists. In Germany, for instance, Hans Kürlis, Martin Rickli, Sven Noldan, uh, and Andor von Balsi have emerged as important pioneers of these different genres, while Julius Pinchever, uh, from whose recently issued DVD most of the films I've shown so far have been taken, is being hailed as a kind of German Walt Disney. And I want to show you uh, uh, the film called Die Schmier Kobolde, yet again about um, cleanliness. Thank you. Right, you, you get, you get the, um, the message here, and of course, uh, then the, uh, uh, the washing powder is introduced that uh, fights the, uh, the little um, um, devils there. Now, paradoxically, among the bona fide directors of the German film avant-garde, there is one named artist who has perhaps benefited most from the paradigm change I have been discussing, where attention has shifted from the mainly political and high art perspective to a more encompassing view of cinema's contribution to modernity. His name is Walter Ruttmann. We've already seen some of his work. Counted among the purists, Ruttmann is famous, first of all, for his abstract kinetic and plastic films from the early 20s, especially the opus films that I showed an extract from and which are usually shown along Hans Richter's Rhythm 21 and Viking Egerling's Diagonal Symphony. But these films seem to have nothing in common with the other Wuttmann, who is even better known, namely the author-director of the cross-section film Berlin Symphony and a Großstadt Symphony of a Big City. 
one of the masterpieces of the new sobriety Neue Sachlichkeit and of Montage Cinema, and as a city film usually cited along with Fritz Lang's Metropolis, also from 1927, and Sigurd Men with a movie camera from 1929. However, much of Ruttmann's other oeuvre has been dismissed, either because it was thought too tainted by commercialism, his advertising films for tires and brandy, his promotional films on behalf of tourism and public health, or as too politically tainted, since he worked with Leni Riefenstahl, made films about major steel producers, and even one about the manufacturing of tanks. Brand is a political opportunist and in German film history often treated as a kind of pariah because he lent his talents to an evil regime. Ruttmann can, however, also be seen in the vanguard of rethinking the modern relation between the avant-garde and industry, between art and design, between advertising and experiment. For once one recognizes his public health commercials, his tire ads and tank films, all as examples of commissioned work, then Ruttmann becomes the very embodiment and proof of how the career of a major filmmaker of the 20th century only makes sense if one applies the three A's and is aware of the creative constraints that made his work possible. I mentioned earlier that the Association for the Independent Film, of which Ruttmann was a founding member, fell apart after only a year or so because of its split over the ethics of taking on commissions and because of its failure to recognize or creatively respond to the threat that the coming of sound presented for the material existence, the organizational viability, and the financial survival of this avant-garde. It was Ruttmann who developed strategies to dealing, for dealing with both, and who, earlier than most, took up the challenge of sound. In doing so, he developed an intriguingly different relation to the film industry from the antagonistic one that was considered axiomatic, for this independent film movement in Europe. Virtually all of Ruttmann's films are commissions. The abstract opus films were commissioned by the big Ufa studios, who ran a kind of research and development division that was interested in testing the effects of line, color, movement, and rhythm on the psychology of viewers itself uh, research undertaken on behalf of firms that wanted to know if film and the cinema were indeed a viable medium for advertising. The application of these experiments were demonstrated as we saw in Ruttmann's tire films, amongst others, where he utilizes many of the graphic motifs now in a far, more far from abstract context and made, as we saw, as a commission for a Hanover tire manufacturer, Excelsior. Um, Similarly, um, there is a film of his called Spiel der Wellen, which is a promotional film for AEG, the largest manufacturer of um, radio equipment at the time. Now, perhaps even more surprisingly, Berlin Symphony of a Big City was also a commissioned work. Contracted by the German subsidiary of the American Fox Studio, it was made as a so-called quota quickie in order to entitle the US company to an import license for one of their own Hollywood films, with which they expected to earn vastly more money than they spent on making the required quota film. In other words, this masterpiece of world cinema was considered by its original paymasters as a waste product and a write-off from which they expected neither profit nor prestige. 
But Ruttmann was a pioneer in his writings as well. Although his critical reflections on the cinema are only available in German, there is now a growing recognition of Ruttmann's importance as a sharp analytical mind, notably clear-sighted about the dilemmas and internal contradictions of precisely independent cinema. For instance, in one of his essays, he remarks that the, uh, the film avant-garde and the film industry are facing each other, not as you would expect, scowling and glowering, but each with a big smile on its face. Why? Because, Ruttmann says, the industry knows perfectly well that eventually it's going to eat up the avant-garde, and the avant-garde smiles because at the end of the day, it is quite happy to be swallowed up. This might sound merely cynical or self-serving in light of Ritman's own career, but it is also quite prescient in the way it accurately describes, for instance, the antagonistically cooperative relation between, for instance, American independent cinema and Hollywood, as reflected, let's say, in the careers of Steven Soderbergh or Quentin Tarantino, or in the way that the Sundance Film Festival, proud to be devoted to independent cinema, serves as a recruiting office for Hollywood's next generation of talent. The same big smile relation obtains between the hacker community today and internet companies like Microsoft, Google, or Apple, where both sides are aware how they stand to benefit from the antagonistic mutuality of parasite and host. Hackers help the big companies spot software flaws and thus uh, debug uh, operating systems, while many hackers eventually find careers with the very companies they once cyber attacked. Given the pace of contemporary mental life, Ruttmann also wrote, where the speed of transmission of mental results has increased exponentially, we need to direct attention not to the individual data or content, but capture the overall development by which separate points from a curve can be perceived as phenomena taking place in time. It is the physiognomy of the curve and not the rigid contiguity of isolated points that must be the objects of our filmic efforts. End of quote. This programmatic statement can be understood as a defense of montage cinema over narrative film, with storylines borrowed from the 19th century novel. But it has also much bearing on Ruttmann's thinking about film sound and sound design. By speaking of the curve, and we saw those curves, uh, the abstract ones, he signaled that cinema was indeed movement, but one that mutated and morphed between abstraction and representational forms, generating its energy from graphic volume and the rhythm of editing. Yet by mentioning physiognomy, Ruttmann not only tried to describe the spectator's most receptive state of mind, in line with the psychophysiological research on advertising I just mentioned, but also showed that he understood the cinema as an art of embodiment, where the ear and the eye cooperate and complement each other, which means that sound and image are not opposed because affecting the same surface and space, namely the human body. However, when, uh, where Ruttmann was well ahead of his colleagues at the time, even those who welcomed sound, very few of them did, was that for him noise and music, speech and any other vocal utterance could be treated as so much sonorous material to be shaped and combined in much the same way that visual material could be shaped and combined according to the principles of montage through analogy and contrast, repetition and juxtaposition. This principle, uh, Ruttmann tried to exemplify with another of his experiments that today we recognize as a breakthrough, a work called Weekend from 1930, which follows the montage principle of Berlin Symphony of a Big City in that it describes the activities of people finishing work on Friday in the city and embark, embark on a weekend in the country. 
Because it consists, however, entirely of sounds and is scored like a piece of music, Weekend has sometimes been misidentified as a radio play, and it is often cited as the first example of musique concrète. But I think it needs to be reinstated as what it was intended, namely a film without images. Could we have uh, some of Weekend, please? <laughs> Thank you. Weekend, however, was only Ruttmann's most radical experiment in the film without images. His first trial in this genre was indeed intended only for radio, commissioned by the German Rundfunk and sponsored by AEG, the biggest producer of domestic radio equipment, as we saw. Uniting the nation around the new mass medium of radio, uh, this uh, film of, uh, or this uh, production of uh, Ruttmann's took the form of a travel guide, uh, which was transmitted simultaneously by different regional broadcasters and was meant to conjure up sights in the listener's mind by means of acoustic, what he called acoustic images. As Ruttmann explained, the imageless radio and the soundless film are two opposites that, if properly played off against each other, will get us closer to a different notion of the new sound film. This playing off against each other, Ruttmann set out to prove with Melodie der Welt, uh, Melody of the World, usually cited as the first full-length sound film produced in Germany and shown in the cinemas. It indeed premiered in Berlin on March 12, 1929, and was a social event that filled the papers for a whole week. But from the perspective of the three A's, it is important to bear in mind both its conditions of possibility and its creative constraints. First of all, it too was a commission. The Hapag Lloyd Steamship and Ocean Liner Company was, for the first time, offering round-the-world sea cruises, and it needed a means to advertise them. The new attraction of sound film was to promote the new attraction of sea cruises, and vice versa, each supporting the other, as it were, with Tobis, the German patent holders for sound films, acting as the go-between and co-producers. Furthermore, these ocean liners were equipped with mobile cinemas, the so-called Bordkino, and besides current hits from the movie theaters, they also wanted to show films that primed the passengers for the sights and delights awaiting them. In preparation, the Hapag Lloyd had commissioned the ethnographer Heinrich Mutzenberger to take a camera team from Tobis, led by Guido Bagier, on one of their South Sea cruises with a steamer Resolute. It was only after they returned and didn't quite know what to do with the material that Ruttmann became involved, who then cut and edited the film uh, by hanging it on a mere thread of a storyline, namely a sailor leaving his girl in Hamburg and serving on the ship. But giving Ruttmann a chance to compose with images and sounds, using sync sound only rarely, and more often adding sound effects and music in post-production, but in a manner that had not been tried before, with sound sometimes illustrating the images, but more often interpreting the images, with subtle contrast and counterpoints, and even at times making the sound stand for the images, or indeed using silence very eloquently. While the message of the film may have been prescribed by the Habak Commission and the occasion, I mean the, uh, the, the cruise, um, foreign lands and people are exotic in the film and alien in some respects, but in all essentials, 
They're reassuringly familiar is one of the messages. The method is Ruttmann's own, working with resemblance and contrast or showing similar scenes but in very different contexts. And the themes are eternal, birth, children, work, play, women getting dressed, men having to fight, the horrors of war, religious rituals, preparing food for the family, and so on. Now that Melody of the World is once more available as a restored DVD version, the film is both a discovery and an occasion for further re reflection. For as we recognize its methods from countless travelogues and ethnographic films since, we can ponder how creative Ruttmann must have been within the constraints that commission and occasion opposed on him if he succeeded indeed in fashioning a genre that has become by now a cliché. But there's another way of looking at Melodie der Welt, given that Ruttmann's never left, Ruttmann never left Berlin for his cinematic trip around the world, and that he fashioned the image track as well as the soundtrack on the editing table in the Tobis post-production studio. Rather than the first sound film, might not Melodie der Welt be just as well described as the first found footage film, a genre that, as mentioned, has enjoyed a tremendous revival now that films had raid the archives for rare and unusual images have become favorites at festivals and turn up in the work of many reputed installation artists. As we rescue Ruttmann's reputation from being an unprincipled, or from only being an unprincipled opportunist, by trying to show how commissioned films in general, and his uh, body of work in particular, embody a logic of their own whose precise place in history is partly determined by the three A's of their conditions of possibility and the creativity set free by their constraints, we can appreciate that Ruttmann might have invented a new medium. Not the sound film or the city symphony, but the archive and gallery film, and perhaps not for himself or his contemporaries, but for us, steeped as we seem to be in a culture of loss and recovery, when the question arises to how to classify, but also how to nurture and preserve the legacy and the memory that the century of cinema has bequeathed to us. Thank you. If anyone has a question or a comment, could you please address that uh, to Dr. Elsa Esser? There you are. The lights are very bright today. <laughs> It's a very good question, and it's the part that I actually left out, I had to leave out for time reasons, which was my th the third A, namely the addressee. You know, where were they shown and who, who were they addressed to? Now, uh, not an awful lot of work has been done, because as you can imagine, it's quite difficult to research that. I mean, it's hard enough to find these films and then to find where they're shown is an extra uh, chore. But there is one aspect that is absolutely crucial um, these films, uh, the, if you like, the, the first wave of avant-garde films were actually shown at cine clubs. 
And that was what I taught, called the, the, the pure cinema movement. They didn't want to be out of, the, of that, that preserve. But the, the European-wide cinema clubs of the 20s went into steep decline with the, with the coming of sound. Uh, they just, you know, the, the, the sound revolution was so uh, overwhelming that, that people uh, only wanted to see sound films, which is why uh, Rutzmann has this special place, I think, in understanding what was involved much earlier. On the other hand, uh, the, the, the German movie circuit was also controlled mainly by two or three companies, the big one being Ufa and the other one being Emelka in Munich and uh, Nero Film. And these had their own cinemas, and suddenly Ufa was so totally vertically integrated. And Ufa, very early on, and this is why they employed people like Ruttmann or Lotte Reininger and so on, that is, in other words, and Viking Egling, and actually all of the avant-garde people were uh, under contract with Ufa, in order to produce short films that were shown prior to the feature film. So there, there, was, there, there were two to three short films from the early days of the cinema when you only had the, the, the num you know, so-called numbers. In other words, short films were the only films shown in the teens. And so that was a carryover into uh, the full-length feature film of the early 20s. However, what, what Ufa decided fairly early on is that they would streamline these programs. And, and then rather than commission people outside, they made them in-house. And they created what came to be known as the Kulturfilm which were short films on cultural, educational, public policy films, which were actually shown, in fact, were rented out to you know, exhibitors and had to be shown along with the main feature. So it was a way of keeping the culture film area as a research and development lab for all kinds of things, as I said, even for um, what we would now call um, market research in, in you know, psychological response to the cinema. This is an area that's only just been uh, worked on, and I had to cut out the part where I was talking about the so-called, well, the Kulturfilmbuch, which is uh, a book that published in 1926, where the man behind this, a man called Emil Beifuss, totally unknown, but as it as now turns out, one of the most important people in, in, in that period for this activity that I've been describing, where Bifus actually invited about 40 people to give their views on what they thought would be the future of these Kulturfilme, and that is films that, that also dealt with uh, the reproduction of uh, uh, you know, sea creatures. Uh, it dealt with uh, what we would now call ecological issues, uh, uh, the, the flora and fauna in, um, uh, you know, around the, the edges of agriculture, um, films that you, you, we would now identify as discovery and uh, National Geographic films. You know, those, those models were all uh, devised in the mid-20s and were shown in the cinemas. Where the films that, that Pinchever made, uh, the, the man who was the producer and the director of many of the films that I show today, uh, that, is, that is a much more difficult one to, to decide, but as I said, there were these other venues like trade fairs and uh, um, uh, political rallies and so on that actually used the cinema uh, as an educational and an agitational medium. Great factory, mass 
um, manufactured for the benign masses. And I was wondering, in, uh, this is totally opposite from France, for example, where there were, from the beginning, there was a, an esteem for art as, I mean, cinema as art. I was wondering about why Weimar Germany. What was the general, what was the uh, consensus of intellectuals, and who was one, about the status of cinema as art at that time? Right, well, the, the discourse was very similar to the French one. In other words, as I tried to point out, the Association for the Independent Film was very much concerned to keep the cinema uh, as a non-narrative medium for artists and for those who thought of the cinema as a high art form or wanted to establish a high art form. Um, and certainly uh, writers like Rudolf Arnheim, in his famous book, Film as Art, was pleading for that and indeed was pleading against the introduction of sound. So um, that is the, if you like, the, uh, the orthodox version of the history is that there was indeed an art cinema and there was a commercial cinema. Uh, unfortunately, or where you want to explain it, uh, I spent the last 25 years of my life to show that this division was one that was heavily ideological and did not correspond to uh, the, the way that the film industry uh, actually saw this. I'll give you one example is the film, you know, The Cabinet of Caligari. Cabinet of Caligari was made uh, within the film industry. It was not a film that was independent or outside, but because it was such a huge success in France, in Paris, it then was re-imported into Germany as an example of expressionist film. In other words, some of those art labels were actually used by the industry as promotional labels. And so the, there was an inter interest on, the, on behalf of the film industry to actually promote the label art film because it had, you know, it had the, the, the ability to enter into you know, French and international circuits which would normally uh, not be re receptive to um, uh, you know, German films. Remember, after the war, there was a huge antipathy to buying, showing, having anything to do with Germany, as strong as after the Second World War, and for similar reasons. And so one way of getting into the international market was to produce films that could be labeled expressionist films. So a lot of films are, are now known in history as expressionist films, even though First of all, expressionism as an art movement was almost over by 1914, and these films are all from 1918 to 1921. And secondly, if you actually you know, use art historical criteria, they have very little to do with, with uh, you know, expressionism in, in, in uh, the visual arts or sculpture. So there was a tendency to use labels as promotional tools, and it was only in the mid-20s that, that Germany wanted to compete with Hollywood in Hollywood and made these mega films, Faust, um, Nibelungen, uh, uh, Metropolis, and so on, which were meant for the international market. But unfortunately, for many reasons, which are too complicated to go into, they never made their money back and actually bankrupted uh, Ufa by 1928. So you're, you're right in saying that there is this distinction being made, but for a film historian looking at the broader picture, which is what I was trying to do, and to use the label modernism in a wider sense, those sharp divisions break down. And you know, I was using these evidently commercial films, you know, these advertising films, to show how much of the thinking of the avant-garde actually entered into their production. Yeah, I'm curious, your comment about the use of the word expressionism, because Caligari and also with 
from Morgan's Bismitronauts, which had a very angular quality to them. Wasn't it somewhat of that and also their depiction of the human psyche, as it were, what really brought the label and was more or less continuing that tradition of looking at the subconscious level? Well, you see, this is, this, this is one of the problems of, of writing film history um, of this period is, first of all, there are two books that, that kind of dominate the debate. One is Siegfried Krakauer's From Caligari to Hitler, which is the political reading of all these films and saying all of these uh, films about um, uh, master gamblers, about uh, somnambulists and uh, manipulators, these are just you know, anticipations of um, Hitler and the Nazi regime. And the other book is Lotte Eisner's The Haunted Screen, which is from an art historical perspective and draws all these analogies that you're drawing. Now, um, in the book that uh, Peggy mentioned earlier, Weimar Cinema and After, I painstakingly try to disentangle those issues and indeed make a case that uh, those labels, uh, you know, if you want, want to understand um, if, if you like the, what I call the logics or the dynamics of, of film in the 20th century, you may have to bid farewell to attaching uh, these films to established art historical labels and see how the dynamics operate from within the perspective of film. And that is why I introduced the three A's. In other words, who commissioned the film, uh, where were they shown, and uh, what was the, you know, we could add what, what were the discourses that the film industry had about them and what the discourses were that the, the, the art critics had about them. So uh, when one looks at the interesting journey between the wars and sees uh, the Scar of David, uh, one doesn't think that it's really very innocent. So in the film about hygiene, where the bombing is putting the glasses and so forth, it's kind of interjected in the middle, and I was kind of wondering, what is the political Right, right. You see, this is what I said, that uh, for us, you know, looking at them now, uh, the, the, raci the, the racial insensitivity of those films is staggering. And uh, I, I hadn't actually noticed the, the Star of David because, you know, that then becomes part of the, the late, this is, this is the anticipation, in the film itself is the anticipation of the, uh, of the brand uh, of, of soap suds that are actually then used to, to fight these. Now, clearly, uh, when you know, and I deliberately chose some of those films to, to to bring this up front, this idea that so many of those films are sponsored by uh, uh, cleaning companies and so on. You know, whether we want to read them politically, um, I would I would be cautious about this because having seen, for instance, films from the teens from the United States and so on, the racial insensitivity is is staggering. I have a film, actually I brought a film because I anticipated this question. I brought a film that perhaps is too late now to show, which is from 1907 by the Black, uh, Blackstone Company, and which, which features uh, something that we've forgotten about, namely lightning artists. In other words, people who uh, could draw incredibly quickly uh, portraits of people, uh, you know, mutate them, metamorphose them as something else. And the, the film that I brought was one that uses the word coon, you know, it's hardly possible to say the word, and then shows you a blackface. In other words, it makes out of the word coon a blackface. And then on the other side, it writes Cohen 
and then makes a caricature of a Jewish character. And that is a film from 1907, and it was hugely popular because if it hadn't been, it wouldn't have survived, and it's actually held here in the, in the Library of Congress. So we, there, is, there, there is an interesting way of understanding how these motifs kind of percolate and why the Nazi party was perhaps able to, to mobilize these emotional uh, resonances so quickly for its own ideology. But the danger is that we do retrospectively read these in a way that, that foreshortens uh, just you know, there's the widespread acceptability of racial stereotypes. Yeah, but my question was more that looking at that, it wasn't even clear what he was trying to mobilize. I mean, it was kind of an innocent projection between, and it, it wasn't really trying even to, mm -hmm. to sell you. Yes, well, because I cut it short, because I, I left out, you know, when, when the... Um, the washing you know, uh, liquid comes in and cleans up. What it meant, you know, what it served was something we've probably forgotten, that, that until you know, uh, these brands were actually established, uh, people did not use uh, washing up liquids the way we use now. They, they scrubbed, you see. So this was really to introduce, as I said, a, a form of modernity in the household saying, look, you, know, you, you better use uh, proprietary brands to, to clean your... Your, your washing uh, or, or your, your, your dishes. Well, as I said, for these films, it's very difficult to establish exactly who saw them because we would really need to know, uh, you know apart from who, who commissioned them, we, we didn't know what the occasion was where they were shown. And, uh, to what extent uh, you know, the big companies that owned the cinemas actually ran these, uh, these films. Um, that is incredibly difficult to reestablish. And as I said, these films have only reemerged in a, in a complex give and take between people looking for unusual material for their found footage compilation films and art, you know, curators or film scholars trying to put authors behind these films. So this man, Julius Pincheva, from you know, whose DVD I'm, I'm taking many of those films, until 10 years ago was completely unknown. And, and the compilation that's now on the DVD was actually commissioned by the French-German arts channel called Arte. They put the money up for these films to be restored, and digitized and researched in the archives. So this is a process that's still ongoing, that we actually identify uh, what are these films, uh, where do they belong, who made them, in what context, and so on and so forth. So it's perhaps a little premature to give you an answer to the question that I think, you know, as I said, I, I would want to ask, because it's a third of my A's, in order to understand exactly what, what the, the impact and, and the awareness of these films uh, was at the time. I think we should take one more and then we'll have a little break. Um, one more question? Yes. I'm just wondering, what are the three A's? I repeat them, yes. I'm using them as A's because it's the German one. It's the Auftrag, uh, the, the three C's in English. The, the first A is the Auftraggeber, which means the, the person or the institution commissioning in, the commissioner. 
uh, instance. The second one is the anlass, which is the occasion or the context. And the third one is the adressat, the addressee, the audience, uh, or the, uh, the recipient. So, so these are, you know, I'm using the three A's as a kind of mnemotechnic device that uh, my students and others who are interested in this area have a quick, uh, you know, check on whether they've followed all the three A's. <laughs> Rather like one of those advertising films of uh, hygiene. <laughs> This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast. 